The Conquest of Bliss, a podcast about finding light in the darkness. This episode was produced by Cabby Productions. Hello, everyone, and welcome back to The Conquest of Bliss. I am here with Dr. Rachel Hannum of the North Brisbane Psychologists. How are you today, doctor? I'm doing well, thank you. How are you? I am fantastic and very excited to talk to you. So anyone that doesn't realize from the name, she's all the way in Brisbane. So that's very exciting. Um, and just a little quick backstory. So how we ended up connecting, very cool, very kismity. Um, I happened to have already liked their Facebook page and thought, well, it's fate. Um, <laughs> I'm not sure why I've liked this, this psychologist practice that I've never, you know, like I'm nowhere near Australia, but it must be, must be fate. So because we have such a great Facebook page. Exactly. Exactly. World known, um, world renowned. So apparently, (laughs) um, so we're going to talk a little bit about shame and guilt today. So can you, I guess, start by explaining what the difference between shame and guilt is? Absolutely. Yeah. And it's a, I think it's a really important topic and it does come up in my sessions with clients um, from time to time, well, probably quite often actually. Um, and it's important distinction. Shame is the awful, heavy sort of feeling um, when we're negatively evaluating ourselves, and the undercurrent of the feeling of shame is I'm bad, there's something wrong with me, I'm not good enough, Um, you know, I'm crap. (laughs) It's just a terrible feeling about yourself. And shame is recognisable in in sort of mm, roundabout ways because shame will either make us want to hide and close up and run away or for some people it can make them very aggressive and angry. Okay. So shame does not usually, and this is why it's an important distinction or one of the reasons, shame does not usually produce constructive action. Okay. Especially if we're not really aware that that's what's going on deep down. And and that makes, sorry, um, that, that makes yeah. sense to me too, um, because like with shame being something that's wrong with us, that what can be done about that? If we're defective, then we're powerless. We're power- yeah, that's an excellent point, Kara. So we feel powerless in shame and we feel worthless. Um, so I guess in the 80s and 90s, when my mum was reading a lot of self-help books, um, there was a lot of talk about self-esteem. Mm-hmm. And so I guess shame is kind of goes hand in hand with what some people call or used to call low self-esteem. So having that negative, pervasive, negative Mm self-evaluation and definitely disempowers you, as you've said. That's a really good point. Guilt, on the other hand, um, and let me sort of qualify it by saying healthy guilt because Mm -hmm. I, I do think there's sort of a toxic or unhealthy guilt. But healthy guilt is a is healthy and, and quite helpful because it's when I realise, you know, I've done something to hurt somebody or I've done something to inconvenience somebody or upset somebody or, you know, I've crossed a boundary. Normally we don't mean to, we just do it accidentally, right? Mm-hmm. But it's 
I am empowered when I feel healthy guilt. It doesn't feel good, but it is empowering because then I can ask myself, look, what can I do? Mm-hmm. You know, and normally I just need to say sorry, right? But sometimes I might say, look, how can I make it right? How can I make it up to you? Can I make amends in some way? So guilt can be very constructive and healthy, whereas shame, as you've pointed out, it doesn't empower us to take action. Um, and shame is correlated with things like addiction, aggression and violence, eating disorders, um, mental illnesses, you know, raft physical illnesses, the raft of things that are, um, you know, what, what psychologists see a lot of, depression, whereas guilt is inversely correlated with those things. So when we know how to use guilt in our lives, we can take constructive action, you know, and um, improve our lives and our relationships. Well, and that makes sense um, too, like, like, because guilt also allows us to see what to do to avoid that same feeling later. So not only... We learn from guilt. Yeah, exactly. Not only do we, you know, have options in the moment to do something about it because we've done something and we aren't something. Like, you know, we're defining it as something we've done, um, but it also allows us to avoid that pain in the the future. So that makes a lot of sense. Um, I have a question about shame and I'm hoping, hoping maybe you'll have an answer. Um, So actually I have a couple questions, but (laughs) um, one of them is, so my... uh, I've heard a lot about like the shame brain and you were talking about how, you know, a lot of mental illnesses will be correlated with shame and stuff like that, which leads me to believe, and of course I'm no expert, but it leads me to believe that there is some primary function of it that exists. Mm-hmm. Like, like, cause most, most things that we experience, there's some reason. And I mean, coping mechanisms can run their course and run out of usefulness pretty fast, but I'm just wondering like, where would that come from? Like there must be some starting point that wasn't as unhealthy and toxic? Well, you know, like a lot of things that have evolved in humans, um, they have their place, as you've said, they have their function and then they can become, uh, when when they exist to an excessive degree, then they can become unhealthy. So the research I'm aware of suggests that we all have shame unless we're a psychopath. Mm -hmm. So, you know, when I explain shame to my clients, I say, congratulations, you have shame, (laughs) you're not a psychopath, would you like a certificate? (laughs) That's my little joke. Always gets a little smile um, and normalises shame as a feeling we all have from time to time. You know, I think shame served, I've read a bit about the evolutionary function of it um, and and I believe Charles Darwin um, spoke about shame in one of his books about emotions and said that shame served the purpose of keeping the tribe together by establishing the norms, right? So children quickly learned when they were shamed for their behaviour, oh, that's not okay, Um, I've broken some rule or some norm and then they quickly pulled their head in, so to speak, so they wouldn't get kicked out of the tribe. So it seemed to help with group cohesion um, and hopefully in um, more healthy group dynamics. Later on, in later childhood and adulthood, shame got transformed into guilt. And in fact, this is a really important therapeutic practice, is transforming shame into guilt because children are very prone to shame and children 
you know, we all know this, we can remember being children. Children aren't very good at saying, I'm sorry, I did the wrong thing. (laughs) I'll learn from that for next time. How can I make it right? Children don't naturally do this, right? Um, We have to teach them how to do this. If if they get good kind of parenting and role modelling in this regard, then by the time they're adults, hopefully they have some way of turning shame into guilt. But if they don't and if they continue to be shame and become shame-based adults, as you've alluded to, then then they're much more prone to these things that I mentioned earlier, addiction, eating disorders, depression, et cetera. Well, and, and that, that is, I really love, I love the way that you answered that because it also answered my other question. And that was, um, that was about shame's function. Like, so when I, I spend a lot of time thinking about shame, I've read some Brene Brown and done, you know, a little bit of, little bit of research. Um, I, that's kind of the way that I am. I'm not really an expert on anything, but I find everything interesting. Um, so, and, and whenever I look at shame and I've had this conversation so many times, I had a friend say, well, is there value in shame? And I'm going, the only, the only value that I see in shame is what you were talking about. That group cohesion is, is not having the chaos of everyone being free of shame. Right, because when we're free of shame, we are a lot less likely to abide by rules that feel arbitrary and things like that. And and so so we end up with something close to kind of the the anarchy. But yeah. if we can teach, like you know, if we can teach and learn how to appropriately use our discretion, <laughs> then that's not really as much of an issue. Like shame is not the only way to to get that. It might be the most efficient way, but it is not the only way. It seems to be a fairly primitive way. You know, you can imagine, um, you know, Brene Brown, I think, says shame is a kind of fear. It's a form of fear. It's a fear of not being acceptable, not being good enough, not being worthy of love and belonging, I think is Mm -hmm. her definition. And you can see, like, when you think of dogs, you know, like you can, uh, most people like dogs, right? And you can you can shame a dog. Well, I mean, I don't know if a dog feels shame because they um, define shame as a social emotion. Um, dogs are social, but they don't have language like we do, so they can't negatively evaluate themselves yeah. in the same way we do. But they certainly can feel fear and they can learn from fear and then they can sort of continue in a pattern of fear And for humans, shame is that sort of continuing in a pattern of fear, but add to that what dogs and cats and other animals don't have and even other primates, which is this ability to negatively self-evaluate because of language. Um, So now we've added an extra layer Mm -hmm. of I'm a bad person, there's something wrong with me, I'm not good enough, I'm crap, I'm terrible, I'm an awful person, you know, and then, of course, you know, like that, Fear becomes frozen fear, the frozen fear of cortisol in the system, the passive stress hormone, which is, you know, makes us very tight and very numb and depressed and and or anxious. So, um, you know, it does, it has served a function, um, but it has that primitive quality about it as well. So we need to be able to kind of kick into our executive functioning, as psychologists call it, you know, and, and have skills and t- psychological tools to transform it, to mm-hmm. understand it and transform it into something more helpful like guilt. That that makes sense. 
that that 100% makes sense. You look like maybe you weren't sure, but yes, it did. It made 100% sense. Um, so so we've, we've talked a little bit. So um, I've had therapists and stuff that have helped me um, with some of the tools, but what are some of the tools that you recommend for transforming shame into guilt? Yeah, that, good question. Let me just give you a really easy one. I, I like easy because people need, like you won't remember it if it's not easy, right? Absolutely. So one of the easiest things to do, and this is what I do, so I always practice what I preach or I stop preaching it, (laughs) Um, (laughs) is when I'm feeling bad about myself, because I'm not a psychopath, so that's um, good. (laughs) When I'm feeling bad about myself, I I often ask myself this question because, you know, uh, once a week at least I'm feeling a bit bad about myself. I ask myself the question, have I actually done anything wrong? It's a very simple question because, and I don't always get the answer straight away, but I know this. I know that all of us have enduring vulnerabilities from childhood. In childhood, all of us were shamed, if not by our own parents, which is probably 90% of people, for something. Like we were all criticised as children. We were all reprimanded. We were all kind of rejected in some way, either by parents, other kids, teachers, you know? Yep. Um, And so we all have these enduring vulnerabilities to criticism, to rejection, to abandonment. And, you know, these um, show up, you know, in our adult lives as feeling bad about ourselves. And, th- and we reject ourselves and criticise ourselves and punish ourselves. <laughs> um, so I want to ask myself, so I'm thinking of a story where some friends I hadn't seen for a long time came to my house and we had a couple of glasses of wine and I think I talked a lot and when they went home I thought I talked way too much and I started to feel negatively towards myself. Mm-hmm. I was still thinking about it the next morning, which is so annoying. But anyway, and I thought, did I actually do anything wrong? And I decided in the end, I didn't really do anything wrong. Maybe I wished I wouldn't have had the second glass of wine. But, you know, it wasn't bad enough to call up my friends and apologise. So I decided that I erred on the side of, no, I haven't done anything wrong. So sometimes you've got to take a bit of time to think, is this just my old conditioning, like that old voice in my head from the past, criticising myself for things when really I haven't done anything too wrong? But other times, of course, the answer is yes. You know, like, yes, I I probably did not say that very skillfully or yes, I forgot that thing and that really caused inconvenience to my colleague or whatever. Mm Mm-hmm. In which case, if I think, yeah, I have done something wrong, well, what am I going to do about it? You know, what can I do now? It makes it actionable. And then it's actionable. But then with the other example, when the answer is, "Mm, no, I don't think I really have done anything wrong or particularly wrong, then I say to myself, if the answer is no, I say, I don't really need to feel guilt or shame. So I give myself permission through that kind of self-talk to let myself off the hook. And I just say to myself, look, I'm human. It was a Friday afternoon. I was tired and I had two glasses of wine and I went blah. I'm sure my <laughs> friends, you know, know me well enough. Like, so, so then self-forgiveness, if it's just my inner critic being overly harsh, 
but I really haven't done anything particularly wrong. Mm-hmm. And I just want to practice self-compassion and self-forgiveness through some some kindness to myself, some self-talk. Sometimes the answer's in the middle for me as well. And if I'm not sure, then I can check it out with the other person. You know, did I talk too much last night? If I did, I'm sorry. You know, normally people, of course, go, no, it's fine. Don't worry about it. But that's, it all starts with this question of, did I actually do anything wrong? At, uh yeah, that's very simple and very, uh, very beautiful. And it kind of leads me to, I don't know, a, a question that I have about, you know, you're talking about being skillful and, and all of that stuff. And that makes a lot of sense to me. And the question I guess I have is sometimes it seems like, and this is, I know this is true for me and I, and other people I've talked to have confirmed that it's true for them as well, um, is like, no matter how many skills we learn, sometimes it feels like we just don't have access to those skills. Um right. <laughs> and uh, and so when we do that, because like you were talking about, um, I have so many thoughts all all at once in my brain, and sometimes it's I hard. Know that problem. <laughs> so when when we're talking about you know being skillful, I think what one of the things you said about you know being self compassionate and giving ourselves grace is like like how do we do those in the moments where we don't have access to these skills? What do we what do we do? Do we just have to forgive ourselves and allow ourselves? like allow the same grace that we would allow our loved ones? Is that what you would suggest or? Yeah, look, yes. And I think that this is where there's a lot of value in practicing psychological skills because they do take practice like any other skill, excuse me. And the more that you can practice kind of stopping, pausing, slowing down, grounding yourself, taking a few slower deep breaths because self-compassion has a different pace to shame and anxiety you know shame and anxiety are really fast in my experience (laughs) they're fast but anything that's a survival mechanism has a kind of certain survival pace about it in my like an urgency to it yeah an urgency exactly exactly but self-compassion or compassion has a different pace you know it's much slower it's much gentler doesn't have that urgency so one of the key skills is self-soothing healthy self-soothing not self-soothing through junk food and alcohol yeah but you know through mindfulness practice and breathing and grounding yourself whatever works you know everybody basically slowing yourself down enough to be able to access those skills that are at the slower pace I think that's the key. You know, we can't access our self-awareness, our skills and knowledge when we are in that urgency. Mm -hmm. So I would say the number one, the number one psychological skill for both your relationship with yourself as well as your relationship with with relationships with others is self-soothing. In fact, John Gottman was asked what, he's an expert on marriage and I use his method um with couples uh and he was asked on the radio in the usa what's the number one skill for a marriage and his answer was self-soothing because all the damage gets done in conflict and arguments when people are dysregulated and then in that survival mode of urgency and anxiety and shame and defenses against shame that's when the damage gets done that makes sense. Yeah. So 
Because basically it's one person's coping skills fighting against the other person's coping skills instead of actually having communication between two people. They're both in that trauma brain or whatever. Trauma brain, shame brain, survival brain. And that's when the damage gets done. So hence why he said, look, that's probably the number one. If you had to pick one, you know, that he said that's probably the number one. That is solid. Um, Mm. And the the self-compassion conversation kind of of leads into the other part of the conversation that we discussed maybe having. And uh, we can always come back. There's no rules here. Um, (laughs) But... uh, the, the self-compassion thing and, in, and, and doing things intuitively, which I think those two things go hand in hand, when you, when you start to trust yourself and be kind to yourself and stuff like that, one of the things that I always, I would say fear more than experience, if I'm being, if I'm being honest about it, it's more of a fear than an actual experience. So one of the things that I fear a lot when I try to move forward with an intuitive type lifestyle and trusting myself and stuff like that is that I'm not going to, like, like how to balance the discipline, the need for discipline with the intuitive living and stuff like that. And it's, it can be a lot to sort out because there's a lot of, there's a lot of rules, quote unquote, in society that we have that make sense and that do protect us. And then there's a lot of them that don't. And it can be very hard to tell which are which. Are you understanding what I'm asking? I feel like it's a bit convoluted. (laughs) No, I absolutely. And, um, you know, like the, the thing about intuitive living, I think, or understanding your true self might be another way of saying that, mm-hmm. um, your true self as, you know, the container for all of your thoughts and feelings and experiences, but you are not defined. Those by yeah. Yeah. You're yes. not your thoughts and feelings. Um, so that sort of, mindful living or intuitive living um is it takes a it does take a lot of practice and discipline you're right i mean absolutely um and i think we all need support and help um to do that i i seek out my own support and help to do that as well because the nature of the human mind and of human conditioning is such that from a young age we create a mental world and this only kind of gets more so as we get older and by the time we're an adult, you know, we can, and I see this with my clients, we are living in this mental world that we have created of um, images and beliefs and projections and thoughts and assumptions and, and that whole mental world that we create that we then project onto ourselves in how we evaluate ourselves, the ideas we have about who we should be and and what we should be like, all those shoulds, mm-hmm. and then we also project it onto, onto others. Now, this constructed mental world that um, is the double-edged sword of being a cognitive verbal creature, um, it would seem that dogs and cats and other creatures maybe don't have this kind of suffering to deal with. <laughs> You know, this mental world is, um, you know, it's so strong. It's so powerful. So Um, believable. Exactly. So seductive, so compelling um, that it's such a discipline. But but we've all had moments of liberation from our conditioning, Mm -hmm. from this mental world that we've constructed. We all have moments where we feel just 
so present, so moved by something in a film or music or in a connection with another human being that is just so pure and connected and in the moment and, you know, heart to heart and intuitive. So we all have those experiences as well. Um, and then they seem, they seem to be so fleeting, you know, because then this grabs hold of us again, all this conditioning of our, you know, mental world. And so it's good if we can find practices that kind of take us beyond that veil, uh, right? Yeah, 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 exactly. Take the veil off, pull us back into our intuitive mind or our intuitive center. And I think this is where mindfulness practice and meditation practice, um, I can't say enough about how important having some practice or practices in our lives um, for cultivating our ability to come back to our intuitive mind, um, back into our deeper knowing that is, you know, underneath all the rules, the rules imposed on us, but also the rules we've created for ourselves. Um, and, you know, I think if we trust, if we know how to access our intuition and we trust it, it never lets us down. That's so true. And I think that that's, that's really like beautiful. The key is to learn how to trust it because, you know, as much as it's, a, it is a discipline to learn how to get there. And I can't say enough good things about mindfulness either. I don't, I don't know where I would be without mindfulness practices. Um, and, and so it's like, yeah, like it's so, it's so interesting to me. And then I, I end up with these questions that I just, I don't even know, like, you know, you know, those questions that are so big, you don't even know how to Google them. Um, <laughs> so like everything could be answered on Google, Cara. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. I know. And it's, it's really disappointing. Cause I'm like, Google, I, I, I thought, I thought we had a thing. Um, <laughs> but but one of those questions that always comes to my mind with intuitive living and mindfulness and all of this stuff. So the beauty of mindfulness for those who have never forayed, or at least my experience with the beauty of mindfulness is that it allows you to create space because just like Dr. Rachel was saying, what, who, what we think, what we feel, those aren't who we are. You know, our body is the container and our mind is, is basically the filter, but who we are is, is something beyond that. And, and mindfulness allows us to create space between our, our mind and, and our, like, you know, think of like a projector, maybe like it's, it's our viewing vessel, right? And, and it allows us to create space between, and we have some control over it, but it allows us to create space between that. So like when you're, when you're being mindful and for example, I have anxiety and I'll have panic attacks and it's so freaking interesting because, because I'll be having this panic attack and my brain's going, your heart's beating really fast. You're, you're breathing really shallow you're feeling very afraid and like, it'll be like narrating it at this slow pace. And that's a result of mindfulness where like, I'm watching, you know, I'm like, Oh, th that's a wild thought. You know, like, I'm like, everybody hates me. And I'm like, well, we know that's not true. And, and, and so mindfulness allows us to create that. But one of the questions that I often have about that, and, and I think you're right, it's a huge piece of intuitive living um, is one of the things I struggle with, I guess, with it is the sense of self, right? Because I'm creating that distance you know, and, and, and what I am behind the scenes is so indescribable that I can start to feel a little bit flighty almost, you know, does that make sense? Yeah. Look, and I think this is the stuff of philosophy and spirituality and more recently some areas of psychology, 
One of my favorite therapies, you may have heard of it, listeners may have heard of it, is acceptance and commitment therapy or ACT. Okay. Um, and uh, there's a couple of therapies actually that are based on Buddhist philosophies. Um, DBT, dialectical behavior mm. therapy, is another one of those. Um, and in our practice at North Brisbane, psychologists, um, our clinicians use ACT and DBT and other therapies, but we really do love ACT and DBT, both of which have this idea of the observing self, which you just described so, <laughs> so beautifully and clearly. It's that ability to, to reserve some part of our mind to kind of notice and observe what's going on, what's going on in my body, what's going on in my breathing, what's going on in my thinking what's going on around me. So without getting completely caught up in that, just to be able to sort of stand back and notice, particularly the inner experiences. Um, and this is something we can get better at the more we practice it. And, and it definitely has a lot of emphasis in Eastern philosophies, particularly Buddhism. And this kind of notion that um, you're not who you think you are, and um, and there's this there's quite a lot of Buddhist concepts which are philosophically very kind of complex in a way and hard to understand. One of them is non-duality, which is this idea of, um, and there are some sort of similar concepts in some therapies. But in Buddhism, non-duality means things aren't completely separate, but things aren't completely one either. You know, it's this paradoxical thing of, you know, we're all connected. Even the air I breathe is the same air as my client is breathing mm -hmm. sitting across the room from me. And then the air becomes, you know, part of my bloodstream and my bloodstream becomes, you know, my muscles and, you know, like the, the capillary roots of a tree, the boundary between the root, uh, sorry, and the soil is indistinguishable. You can't, if you look at it under a microscope, you can't see where the root and the soil exactly end because, oh, because so cool. of the way of it. you know so the bound what we think of as the boundaries in in the physical world even they are up for question you know like how interconnected everything is i think um we completely miss that as humans as soon as we start naming everything and children learn words mm -hmm. for everything start to get this sense of very individualistic thinking. Yeah, yeah, and this separatist sort of thinking. But, you know, when we realise that there's so much more interconnection um, than our minds tell us, but then, of course, we are separate as well. So it's a very strange thing to think I'm just a container for experience. I'm just this stage <laughs> hosting the actors of thoughts and feelings and memories but somehow my stage, the stage that is me or the container that is me, is different to the stage or the container that is you. Mm -hmm. Like there's still a uniqueness there. Yeah. And when we kind of make this a practice to remember I am not my thoughts, I am not my feelings, then we are left with this question of, well, then who am I? What is my deeper true self? What is my unique intuitive self? if I'm not my thoughts and feelings, if I'm just the container? And I think that is a really great question, not something you can just answer yeah. in <laughs> words and put on a T-shirt, but, um, you know, like it's it's not like that. It's not necessarily um, a verbal, a, a thing that you can easily verbalise. 
nonetheless, I think it's a really great question of kind of, well, if I'm not my thoughts and feelings. And I'm not my body and I'm not my job. And yeah, like. I've got a body, yeah, but I'm not this identity that I've constructed for myself in that mental world. Then, like, what am I? And then we come to concepts of mindfulness and presence and being present moment by moment and just being a conduit for aliveness or our life force, you know, and yet each of us have this unique life force that sort of seems to express itself in a unique way for each of us. And yet we have these common themes across you know just being human so this is where i do like this idea of non-duality we're not one we're not all separate either and like isn't it great that we don't have concrete solid hard and fast answers i think it's Mm -hmm. great yeah it's it's fluid that's always available for our investigation Absolutely. Like the fact that we get to discuss it is in and of itself a blessing um, that it's, that it, I mean, how boring would it be if we understood everything? Um, yes. <laughs> and, and like, I just, I just love that. And I mean, I guess the reason, cause I didn't, I didn't expect you to have an answer. I wasn't like, Oh, Hey person that I'm just talking to you for the first time. Tell me who I am. Um, so much as I, I just think that it's, I don't know. It's so, it's so valuable to recognize, um, to recognize that, you know, there's challenges with any way of, of existing and thinking. And one of the things I think that you you touched on in your answer is one of the things that's helped me cope with that, because that sense of self-question, the more, the more I've, <clears throat> sorry about that, the more I've learned about mindfulness practice and all of that stuff, the more this questions got bigger and bigger and bigger. And I think that when you talked about being present, I think that that's the answer is that the answer is we're never going to have a solid answer. So only spend time there, or at least for me, one of the rules that I have is only spend time in that question when it isn't going to cause me distress. When it's, when it's coming from curiosity and not from desperation. Um, (laughs) because when I'm desperately trying to find an answer, then it just causes me pain because it doesn't have an answer. But when I'm exploring it, then, then it, it is, I don't know, it, it comes from a, it comes to a better place, I think where I'm, you know, comfortable. I mean, some people say that the answer is I am. And you set, put any qualifier behind that and and then you're limiting yourself. And it's like, well, okay, I hear that, but it also feels like a cop-out uh, <laughs> to just say I am. <laughs> um, but yeah, so I think that that kind of ties into the intuitive living thing and, and all of that. There's so many questions yeah. that come. Um, and for some reason, I'm reminded of something you said much earlier, back to the shame thing really quick, is, mm. you know, when you were talking about shame, one of the things is, you know, you, you, you touched on shame on top of shame. Basically, people start feeling ashamed for feeling ashamed and stuff yes. like that. And it's, it happens so quickly where it's like, what's wrong with me? I'm always feeling like this. I'm, I'm such a victim. Why am I acting like such a victim? And then suddenly, we're sh- and. And sorry, I know that that feels very um, disjointed from what we were just no, talking about. No, no, no. I actually know exactly what you mean, and I agree with you entirely. It seems to me like we put these layers of suffering into our lives. <laughs> we already have the suffering, or maybe just the pain, of 
being triggered into a state of anxiety, say, you know, like something happens, you know, I realise that I've forgotten to meet somebody, for example. We all know Mm -hmm. that experience, right? You've forgotten to do something or to meet with somebody you said you'd meet. And as soon as you realise you have a physiological reaction, right, which is anxiety or whatever we want to call it, oh, my goodness, shock and anxiety. Then the next layer is could be I'm such an idiot, you know, like... I always do this, I'm so forgetful, it's just because I'm selfish or lazy or stupid or something, 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 something. Yep. Then, yeah, if you were to really look at it, then you might feel bad, then you're still feeling bad the next day and maybe you're over-apologised and some of that stuff that can go with shame, the fawning uh, survival mechanism. And then... You, you know, you're like, why? I know I always feel so bad about this and I feel bad about it for days. What's wrong with me? So then you get that next layer of shame about your shame, mm-hmm. which is the layer that prevents us from talking about shame. It's that layer that when I recognised it in my own life, I was like, I'm about to go and tell my husband that I feel really a lot of shame about his criticism of me earlier. Now I feel scared of saying that I felt shame. Why do I feel shame about having shame? Like that seems ridiculous, but I did because if we, that's the nature of shame. Brene Brown says it thrives in secrecy and silence so that Mm. when we don't talk about it, that's the shame of shame. Well, and that's such a, that's such a solid point is, is that it's not the original shame that causes that stigma and causes that challenges, that shame, that second layer and that third layer and fourth layer that causes that. And then suddenly we feel stuck. Now, thankfully, thankfully we have a lot of resources um, that are available now that weren't available for our grandparents and even our parents to the same degree um, to start combating that and start pulling it apart. And, and, you know, I, I'm so grateful for the life that I've led because like, it somehow led me to coming like realistically, I, it could not have been predicted that I would have the resources and tools that I have available. Um, like the trajectory of my life, it, no one would have predicted that. So I, I feel so blessed because I spent uh, like I spent some time in addiction when I was younger and spent a lot of time um, making choices that were overall, I celebrate the choices that I made because they they landed me here. <laughs> but but objectively unwise choices. Um, well, and at the time, I guess you mean at the time caused you a lot of suffering. Yes, exactly. And, and we're, you know, known to be what, what most people would consider bad choices, but I'm not a huge fan of the word bad. Um, not a huge fan of moralizing our hum- every single element of our humanity. <laughs> me, yeah, me too. I, I think it's much better to say, you know, was it helpful or unhelpful? Did it, did it give you peace or did it give you more suffering or more stress? <laughs> exactly. Yeah, I always say harmful or helpful, but yeah, same thing. <laughs> yeah, yeah. Um, so, so like I said, I mean, I, I guess the only reason I'm saying this is I just want to be encouraging because, because it can feel like a lot because it is a lot. Like as you were talking about, we have built entire, I always call it universes, but worlds works too. You know, um, I always say universes because I'm thinking like, uh, parallel universes. Like we have proof that that exists in the fact that we don't understand each other. (laughs) Um, right. Yes. Um, so Good point. We have these entire worlds, universes, whatever that we have built where, you know, it's 
It's everything that we see is built on it. We see what we expect to see. And like our brains are just bias machines. Like there's so, so many biases and 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 things that exist that trip us up. So many, you know, things that, that affect our paradigms. And so it's a huge job to even get started, you know? Yeah. But sometimes... Like, you know, my mom always says, how do you eat an elephant one bite at a time? You know, like sometimes the, first, the best thing you can do is just do one little step. So, you know, if you're feeling shame on top of shame, take that second layer, you know, and do something with it. You know, maybe yeah. you can't deal with all of it, but you can start, you know. Just, that's right. Just make a start, you know, yeah. The first easy step, the very next step, that's all we any of us can ever take. Yeah. Yeah. So, and there's, like I said, there's so many tools and some of them will work in one moment and, and, and not in another. And that's okay. That's why we, that's why we fill our toolbox, right? A hammer won't, uh, won't help you with a screw, but. Exactly. Exactly. And I definitely recommend to people if they're new to the area to start with Brene Brown's work. I don't know if you can post a link somehow. Oh, for sure. For sure. You know, to her TED Talks, which is often a place I suggest my clients start with her TED Talks it's sort of easy to digest easy to digest and then they can look into her her website her books her other material oh yeah just she's she's very very good at explaining it in a palatable and easy to understand way which is one of the nice things she's a very good bridge between the psychological world and the the layman's world um public yeah uh so before um before before i ask you for um for you know, any closing thoughts and stuff, would you be willing to play a silly game? Sure. Okay. It's, it's really silly. Um, all I do is I just read you slang from a different country and you have to guess what the slang means. Um, so I'm going to, because you're from Australia, I'm going to do Canada. Um, okay. I might do very badly. I have not, I've been to the U S but I have not been to Canada. That's okay. I, I honestly, I always feel lucky cause I'm not the one who has to guess cause I'm a terrible guesser. Um, uh-huh. so don't feel bad. <laughs> It's just, okay, so we'll start with something that I would think is easy. Okay, so full disclosure, by the way, because I'm Canadian, all of these seem like they're not Canadian slang. So I might read something that isn't just Canadian and think that it is. So if you're like, uh, yeah, we call it that here too, I'll totally get it. Um, Okay, so a loony. A crazy person. It's a $1 coin. Oh, Hey, that's good. I never knew. Yeah, and uh, our $2 coin is called a toonie because we're creative. Uh, uh, yes. What is a double-double? A double-double? Mm-hmm. Um, a really strong coffee? It's actually very close. It's a coffee with two cream and two sugar. So ah. I'm, I'm impressed that you went the coffee route. Um, okay, this one, what's a two for? piece of wood of a particular size no no that's not a, that's a two by four um a two four is a is a 24 case of beer so a lot of canadian slang is centered around beer um yeah <laughs> i don't drink but australians as well <laughs> um so do you know what a toque is a toque no i'm guessing it's not a toucan no no do you guys have toucans Oh, Brazil, isn't it? I have no idea. <laughs> uh, a toque is like a beanie, like a knitted hat. 
Oh yeah, we call them beanies. Yeah. Um, Keener. Oh, Keener. Yeah. I can't even think of anything creative. You'll just have to tell me. I don't know. So it's it's like um, if someone is like. Uh, overly enthusiastic. Sometimes it'll be in like brown noser, but usually it's just someone who's overly enthusiastic. So if it's like a guy comes into work super pumped, they'll be like, oh, he's a keener. Um, ah, all right. Yeah. And we're going to do one more. And I really, really struggle to believe this is Canadian, but maybe it is. I don't know. Um, kerfuffle. Oh, kerfuffle. Yeah. We okay. You guys use kerfuffle? kerfuffle. Okay. Yeah, cool word. It really is. It's fantastic. That's why I was like, there's no way that that's only Canadian. I'm glad it's yeah. not. I saw a great um, meme on Facebook the other day, you know, like the cutest words in English and kerfuffle was one of them. Yeah, because it's fantastic. Like what a great way to say hubbub. Um, oh, for anyone that doesn't know, because maybe Americans don't, it means like a, like a, like a, a hubbub, like a, like a, <laughs> like a kerfuffle. <laughs> yeah, it's not, it's, 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 it's much less than a disaster, but it's something that's gone a little bit awry, isn't it? Something yeah, like a, a scuffle bit- of some sort. Yeah, it's, it's funny because I tried to define it thinking it would be super easy and then immediately couldn't figure out the right words. <laughs> that's why we have these slang words, isn't it? <laughs> um, so thank you for playing. And before we go, can you let people know how they might be able to reach you if they happen to be in Brisbane I'm not really sure or anything you want to plug or or whatever well, I mean um if people are in Australia like we actually do since COVID-19 we have all been getting I'm sure it's the same for therapists in North America we've all been very good at um gotten very used to doing therapy over Zoom or Skype or some other video platform so we, we actually do do therapy at North Brisbane Psychologists with people in other parts of Australia and I even have had clients from other countries. So people could get in touch with us if they wanted to. Probably the best way is through our Facebook page, which is just called North Brisbane Psychologists. All right. And that will be linked, of course. And before we close, is there anything that you want to add about literally anything um, I was just going to say one more thing about um, if people are interested in looking deeper into the issue of shame uh, versus guilt and transforming shame, one one term that I didn't bring up is shame resilience. And Brene Brown, who we have mentioned a lot, she has done a lot of research earlier in her career on shame resilience. And last time I looked, there was a good website called Shame Resilience. It's either .net or .org, but it came up in my Google results on the first page when I typed in shame resilience oh, a couple nice. of years ago. So there are, had the, this shame resilience, which was in the URL, I can't remember exactly. It had quite a lot of great resources and articles. So if people wanted to um, quickly dive in to something online, they could have a look into the shame resilience stuff as well. And I, I think that that's fantastic. I mean, dealing with shame is really... From my experience, it's like ground, like, you know, ground level stuff that we got to, got to start with, you know, because it's so pervasive. And, and it's something we can only become resilient to. We can't get rid of shame. We just have to learn resiliency around it, like recognizing it, speaking it, naming it, transforming it. 
seeing the cultural influences in Western culture that reinforce it so that we can sort of detach ourselves from some of the enculturation that we've all received. There's a few elements to shame resiliency, but I like this notion that we can't get rid of it. We can just become more resilient. Well, and I like that too, because like, I think that it's, yeah, like we can learn how to interact with it in a healthy way. It's a natural part of our being. It's, it's, there, as we discussed in the beginning, for, you know, for reasons. It was developed for reasons, so it's not going to just disappear because we don't like it. And our past is our past and our culture is our culture. We need to find healthy ways to relate to all of that, as you said. Mm-hmm. I think that that's, that's beautiful. So I constantly forget to tell people this beforehand. I, on my earlier interview, I remembered, and then this one I didn't. Um, so just stay on. I'm going to close everything out, but don't hang up. <laughs> Okay. (laughs) All right. So thank you everyone for listening. And a big thank you to Dr. Rachel Hannum with North Brisbane Psychologists. And again, that'll be linked down below. So thank you very, very much for joining us today. Thank you for having me. And to my listeners, love you. Bye.